to take your Bibles and stand with me. Turn to Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20, if you're capable uh, to stand or otherwise sit and listen. But we want to read our text today, Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. It is the parable of the sower, um, probably more the parable of the word. There's not much told about the sower here. Um, but what a great text this is. I think it'll challenge us. I'm titled the sermon, The Soils of the Heart of Man. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. Follow along as I read God's word here. Verse 1 of chapter 4. He began, that's Jesus, to teach again by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered to him, and he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seed fell into good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear it immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown to them. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom the seed was sown on the rocky place, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then affliction and persecution arise because of the word, and immediately they fall away. And others are the ones in whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones in whom seed has sown to the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty and a whole hundredfold. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, thank you for the reminder and worship that you are the God who sees, knows all things. You are the God of everything, as Nathaniel reminded us. You are the God of everything. You know all things. You know all hearts of men, women, and children. You know whose hearts are hardened and hearts are shallow. But you know the hearts of good soil because you have plowed there, Lord. Father, this morning we 
plead with you that you would establish a crop within the hearts of those hearts that you plowed. They would receive the word today, Lord. We would take it in and it would become fruitful in our lives. 30 and 60 and 100 fold, Lord, when the glory returned to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you walked on this earth. We thank you that you just didn't come and show up in time for a, a crucifixion, but you lived a life of perfect sinlessness before man. You spoke truth. You poured God's word into the hearts of people, Lord. You lived a sinless life and died a perfect death. You truly are our great high priest. Lord, now as we study your word, plunge it deep into our hearts. Let the roots take deep, Lord. And may we be captured by your truth. Father, before we end this prayer, we want to remember those who are maybe battling a hurricane and water levels and houses that have been ruined. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to them, Lord. We pray especially that you would draw people to yourself through this. We know that you have control of all things, though we do not understand or even try to speculate why you do what you do at times, Lord. We do believe you and trust you. But you are a God of mercy, and so we ask for mercy for those who suffer, whether it's a hurricane here or fires out west or others going through difficulties, Lord. Father, we pray for those in our church who are suffering from illnesses, maybe diseases that they are battling or a sickness, Lord, or going through treatment, Lord, please be merciful to them. Give them strength. Many watch now as we speak, Lord. May you encourage them uh, where they lie in their hospital bed or at home, Lord. May they bring uh, this message from you, your word, bring great joy to them. Father, we thank you for all the babies that were born this week. Uh, we give you great praise for life. We thank you for babies that are coming very, very soon. You're such a good God. You take and you give. You do it all in your perfect righteousness, Lord. And so we, we give you honor and glory for that, Lord. Father, thank you for our young families. We ask that you would care for them and love them. May our church uh, be a welcoming church to young families as they uh, try to get their feet under, their, under the ground and on the ground, Lord, and grow as a family. Lord, we just pray for them. May they be welcome here. May they learn and may they be shepherded as they learn to shepherd their own homes, Lord. So we ask you to... Bless our young ministry here, Lord. Father, thanks for your word. Now, uh, pierce our hearts with truth, and may you get all the glory for those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are in the middle of our series on Mark, um, and we begin to come to his par- what we call his parabolic uh, parables, these teachings, these parabolic teachings. And as you think about this, um, it's an amazing change in Jesus' ministry. And it's hard to understand a little bit when you look at this, how they could miss Jesus and who he was. And yet, here he is going to make things a little more difficult than we had to try to understand that this morning. Now, up to this point, when you think about Israel and the time of life that they had been in, there was just massive messianic expectation. They have been longing for the Messiah come. They're under Roman occupation. And if you just think back all that they've been through this nation and how they would have longed for a Savior to come and yet they're about to miss Him. 
It goes back all the way to 725 BC. This is when the Assyrian armies came in, took the northern tribes captive. And, and then 150 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, 605 to 596, somewhere in there. There's three waves of attack on Jerusalem and the, north, in the, the southern tribes, and they go off to captivity. And then you have the Mede-Persians that take them, and eventually the Greeks. And now here, in Jesus' time, the Romans are the oppressors of the nation of Israel. It's a, just a painful reminder of bondage. It's a painful reminder of rejection of God and what comes with that. And yet, and yet, in the middle of all of the teaching in the Old Testament, there's close to a third of the Old Testament promising this kingdom that is to come. And here he is, the king of kings. He's among them. And yet so many don't recognize him. John the Baptist has come. He has been the forerunner. He has said, I am a forerunner. I'm not worthy to unstrap the sandal of his boot. There's one coming who is way greater of me. One I'm not, not even worthy to take that strap off. But he, he will baptize you by the Spirit. I can just merely baptize you in repentance of, of water. But he's coming with the Spirit. There was great response by the nation to John the Baptist. And there was quick joy. A lot of people were thrilled. Well, this is it. This is the one. And yet, when this long-awaited Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, arrives, the nation rejects him. And you can see it beginning to happen. This is why Jesus is going to start teaching in parables. And it gets worse. By the time you get to the cross, John chapter 19, do you remember this? When they're crying, crucify him. And, and finally, Pilate says, do you want me to crucify your king? And you know what their response was? We have no king but Caesar. Here he was, the king of kings, and amongst them. John put it this way, John chapter 1, 10 and 11. He said, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Just think about that for just a moment. The creator of the world is in the world right now. And the verse goes on to tell us the world did not know him. So there's the world, and then verse 11 gets a little, dials in a little closer, and it says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. See, this is what's going on. The king of kings is on the earth. The creator of the world is there. The savior of the world is there, and hearts are hard, hard against the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in Acts chapter 3, the apostles did not hold back as they became empowered by the Spirit of God to preach to the early church. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, and then we'll drop down to verse 18. Acts chapter 3, this is Peter's second major sermon with great crowd and then uh, massive amounts of people are saved But he says this in verse 13 as he's preaching. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's going down to their heritage. These are the the patriarchs of the faith. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Wow, what a statement. The God of our fathers has chosen to glorify his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. 
And when he decided to release him, guess what you did? But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And then drop down to verse 18. He says this, But the things which God announced before him by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And so all of this is part of this fulfillment of the Messiah. He was going to come. He is the, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He comes to his own. He is, a, he is a reed blown in the wind. He is the one that is rejected. And he is the one that goes and becomes the last lamb. We do know and and our hope is that Jesus will come again and he will set his kingdom up. But they were so kingdom-minded at that point. They so desired that the kingdom of God would be on the earth right now. And, and he would overthrow their enemies that they overlooked a need for a savior. And brothers and sisters, that's still a huge problem today. Everybody wants a God. Everybody wants a Jesus. But few want a savior. There's such a difference. And the things that we'll study today, the hearts of man will be revealed just as they were revealed in Jesus' time as much as they are today. So, Jesus will return. Now think about how difficult this must have been on the disciples. Um, here they are, the religious elite, those that they were trained probably as young boys to respect, these elite, religious elite, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. They are now working tirelessly to get rid of Jesus, to discredit him. Just the thing about that's what they were trained. You honor these men. They were the ones that taught rabbinical school. They were the ones that trained their parents and their grandparents. And, and yet these very people are turning against the one they have left everything to follow. And imagining through it's going through their mind is what's happening. How could they reject such a long-awaited one? How could they mistake his power and authority? So far, just in the short way, short time we've been through the first three chapters of Mark, we've seen demons cast out of people. Miracles done that only God himself can do. Forgiveness of sins that, that only can be granted by God. And yet, even this perfect, sinless life with great popularity he is beginning to be rejected. And by the end of his ministry, there's 120 people hiding in an upper room. At the after, after his resurrection, he reveals himself to about 500 people, and he ascends on high. After all that. And you go, why? Why? Why can't they see Jesus for who he is? Maybe that's a question you ask of friends and family members and others. The fact comes down, the hearts are hard, and there's no room for God. Look with me at Luke chapter 13. Not too long after this parable is given, Jesus says these words. Luke chapter 13, verse 23 and 24. It's an interesting recording because there's someone who cries out this, this question. The Bible does not report who it is. 
They've been listening to Jesus' teaching. There's calls to repentance. There's healings going on. He's showing his authority to be able to change people's lives. He's talking about faith that is, that is great, though it may be small, it is great. And finally, someone, verse 23, cries out. Someone says to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? What a great question. Do you feel like that? I mean, we'll stop right there for a second. Is your entire family saved? Is everybody at your workplace saved? Everybody on your block saved? I mean, think about it. That's a great question. Are there just a few who are being saved? And then Jesus answers this question. He says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, now listen to this, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. They will not be able to. See, the gospel is a narrow, narrow entrance to the kingdom of God. And it gets very narrow when hearts are hard and cold towards sin and to dealing with a Savior like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this parable is about. It's not to sit here and try to think and people in your life and go, well, that must be that person, that must be that. The Bible's trying to teach us how difficult it is to come to God because most people try to come on their own. And yet it must be God who plows the heart, who plants the seeds and changes lives. I think it's apparent here as we study this that Jesus really loves his disciples. He loves his followers. I find great comfort in that. A lot of us will maybe pick a disciple and kind of say, well, that's kind of like me. You might see that. Maybe it's a, a doubting Thomas at some level or a Peter who opens mouth and inserts foot. Or, you, you pick one of them, right? But here we see Jesus sitting with these men and, and, and most likely women. We'll see that the text is larger than the 12 here as we get into this. And he is revealing truth to them in a way that they will understand that no one else does. Because God has prepared their hearts for such a time. He desires for them to understand. And so he begins what we call parabolic teaching or descriptive teaching. The word um, is an interesting word. It's a compound word. It means to come alongside and lay something down. It's a word of comparison. And this is what he's going to do. He picks agriculture. Agriculture was uh, uh, known by everybody. In the first century, you had your hand in it one way or another. In fact, those of us that have been in the agriculture world realize that till 1930s, where the great industrial revolution came, 70% of Americans were involved hands-on in agriculture. So for the most of human life, everybody has been involved in agriculture. So he uses this, this opportunity to come and take something that's very uh, accustomed to their time and to teach great truths. One more thought before we get into our notes here. I wanted to tell you this is the same day. Remember I told you not too long ago that there's roughly about 42 days of Jesus' life recorded in the Scriptures. We're still on the same day. I mean, think of all the things that have happened in this day. He's come back from a, from a mission trip with his disciples. He comes 
home and, and it's so uh, busy and the crowds are pressing on him so much that he can't, the Bible says he can't even eat. He, he heals, Matthew and Luke remind us that he heals a demonic mute and that just increases the frenzy. He get, engages with these religious leaders who say he's in league with the Satan and there becomes their, this debate and the Lord Jesus just dominates it with truth. And then they, they move on out, and he gets away from the city, and he begins to teach. He begins to tell people who his family is, who the real family of God is, and is those who, who love and fulfill the will of God, and he's drawn those two. And by the time we get to this text, on the same day, he has made, himself, made his way down by the sea, out in the middle of his creation, and he's teaching. And he's teaching. Let's look at a couple of thoughts. We'll see how far we get this morning. Number one, the Messiah creator gives an agriculture lesson. The Messiah creator gives an agriculture lesson. You'll notice in the first eight verses, there's no commentary to this. No spiritual commentary. He doesn't go in and start to describe what's happened. He's just going to give a description of what it means to farm. And what happens with the seeds, you'll see that as we go along. Notice the setting. He's in his creation here. In verse 1, he begins to teach again by the sea. So he's, this is what he's done. He has taught all day long. He's cast out demons. Doubtless he healed people. Battled with the religious leaders. And here he is again down by the sea proclaiming truth to this crowd. In fact, verse 1 says it was such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat. Do you remember in chapter 3, verse 9, he asked the disciples to get a boat ready? He's now using it. <laughs> and you can see this scene. Um, crowd has pushed down to the shore. Maybe there's some who have waded in to their knees or even waist. And here's Christ seated in a boat. I was recently talking to a man who has spent over 100 trips taking people over to Israel. And he said, there's several spots where it's almost a built-in amphitheater when you're standing on the edge of the water. And in fact, if you've been on the water on a still day and you speak, you can, your voice carries tremendously well across flat water. You can hear somebody out in the boat talking, fishing if the water's still because it just, there's nothing to stop it. The voice just carries on it. And here's Jesus with this massive crowd up on the bank and he's sitting in a boat as he's teaching to them. What an amazing thing. I love it that he sat down. He, he's in teaching mode now. He's probably preached and debated with these men who hate him, who are trying to put him in league with Satan. And now he's here sitting, teaching to them. Notice in verse 2, he introduces a new teaching style. He was teaching them many things in parables was saying to them in, their te in this teaching. So here um, we see that the religious leaders have aligned him with Satan. So Jesus starts this parabolic teaching. And it marks this new stage of his di uh, didactic teaching. Before this, he has talked very plainly. He has talked directly. He hasn't used a lot of word pictures yet. But now, whenever you study Jesus... When he speaks, now listen to this, speaks particularly about the kingdom of God, he's going to use a parable. And you go, well, why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because that's all the religious leaders were about. We get the kingdom. We've done all these things. We've kept all these things. We didn't eat this. We didn't ha uh, have that. We didn't entertain this. We weren't with those people, of course. We will receive the kingdom of God. If you follow like us, you'll receive it as well. So Jesus says, 
I'm going to hide the kingdom from you. Because your hearts are hard and cold towards the word. And so he starts this parable. This is the idea of laying something down and comparing it to something. Uh, this is very common in the agriculture world. I remember one day I was talking to a, this cowboy rancher guy, and he was uh, clearly a man of the world. Um, and he was trying to tell me a story about something, uh, someone else, but he knew I was a preacher, so he didn't want to, quote, gossip. So he started to tell me a story about a coyote. It wasn't long before I put it together, oh, he's talking about this guy. <laughs> and, I, and I remember that term, he's a coyote. And he described to me what coyotes were as though I didn't know that. See, he was laying down something so I would, in his mind, understand. And this is what Jesus does. He's going to lay down some truth, come alongside something so that you'll see some everyday event, particularly in the first century here, that you would understand this. This is skillful teaching by Jesus. And when he teaches, it's absolutely perfect, absolutely flawless. And here our Savior is going to lay down truths to something very, very beautiful to help us understand how God works. Notice the illustration. Verse 3. He starts with the phrase, listen. It's interesting, only Mark records this strong summons. It's, a, it's an imperative, it's present tense. Right now, hey, listen. <laughs> Jesus is talking. Wow, that's pretty cool. Listen. And then he, then he says, look, the sower went out to sow. And he's, he's now developing this word picture. And in your mind, you could see this man, this woman, this person who would come out of his house. He would leave his dwelling. He would have a leather pouch. And in that would be wheat or barley. And he, he's leaving that place and he's going to a field. He's going somewhere to dispense that. Sowing seed is an amazing thing. Those of us that have done it, um, you put the seed in the ground and you wait. <laughs> you hope something comes up. Uh, barley was uh, an important part of their diet. They would plant barley in the early, uh, early to late fall, just before rains would come in. And then the cool weather, as it just comes up and it starts to grow a little bit, the cool weather would stool it out and, and then it would kind of go dormant. But underneath the ground, more, more roots would go and more shoots would come as spring would come. And so that one seed that you would put in the ground, that just one little seed and that track that would go in there would produce grain upon grain just out of that one seed. And so he's setting this illustration. Most likely these are fields no larger than just an acre maybe. It's known even up to before the age of the tractor that just one man, one family could farm about 20 acres. That's about all you could do with the best horses, best teams. So here it's probably less than that for a family. But he's out in this field and you can see it in your mind's eye. Verse 4, um, the Bible tells us, As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Meaning, during this process, as, as he was sowing, the Bible says, something happens apart from the purpose. Now, uh, this is very common. The Bible says some seed fell on the road. So it's all the same seed, but it's falling in different areas. Now, in modern times, those of us have farmed, uh, we ha I had a big John Deere drill, had giant bays in it. You would pour 
I'd probably pour 30 sacks of grain into that. It was hydraulic, you know. So out through the field, after the field was all plowed, all leveled to go, out in the field we'd go, drop the hydraulics, the blades would cut a, cut a furrow, the seed would fall in there, and then behind a wheel would roll over and push that dirt over. But often, to make sure it was all working, as I drove down the hard-packed dirt road to go into that field, I would drop it down and see and make sure every shoot was dropping seeds and at a rate that the soil could handle um, in its growth in water. And it didn't take long as I was out drilling, we call drilling that field, I would look back and here comes the ravens and here comes the crows eating that seed along there. So you can see him developing this beautiful word picture. The birds are eating the seed. The path is so hard that it invites these self-seeking birds to say, wow, there's an easy meal. They come and get it. Verse 5, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depths. So here he speaks of a rocky soil. This is particularly in the Middle East. There was sometimes there's places, not so much down the Jordan Valley, but other places where there's just a thin layer of soil, and underneath it they have a limestone there that nothing penetrates and nothing grows in. And this is pretty evident as you study their soils over there. So the soil doesn't have any depth. That means quick germination. Immediately things sprout up and then comes premature growth and there's a hotbed there and things just don't live. And anybody who has not had any depth to a garden, you know that your tomatoes started out good and they died soon. Verse 6 tells us that they're unable to put down any roots, right? And after the sun has risen, it was scorched because it had no roots. It withered away, so it couldn't get down to the, to the nourishment that it needs, the strength to support something to, to, give, to give fruit from that seed. Verse 7, the other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and, and it yielded no crop. So here is next illustration. You can see very easy in the mind's eyes this picture that he's giving is where thorn bushes would grow. Now, it wasn't like they were out throwing seeds in the thorn bush. That would be foolish. What happens often is, as you farm an area, you cut down some things, and you try to clear that field, but there sometimes there is roots to thorns that are out there. I, I remember on our ranch, I was farming some actually real virgin ground. It had never been farmed as far as we knew um, certain areas. And I remember walking through that field, high sagebrush, 10 to 15 feet sagebrush in there, so I knew there was good soil. But as we got to the edge of where I would farm, the sagebrush would get shorter. <laughs> the depth of soil was changing. I remember marking that field off and trying to find as big as areas as I could so I could farm that area and plant hay there, grain hay particularly, um, so that we could get a good yield out of that to feed our stock through, through the winter. But I remember taking um, uh, a tractor with a, with a auger on the back of it and digging in corners and trying to find where the soil would change. And eventually you would get to the edge of the field and pretty soon that auger would go down and you hear clunk. <laughs> Ooh, okay, this is in. Put a stake there. We can't go any farther. Nothing's going to come good if we farm beyond that. And you can see all this happening, very realistic, very word picture as Jesus is talking about that. But notice verse 8. Other seed. It falls on good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop both 30 and 60 and 100 fold. What a beautiful phrase this is here for one of us that would love to see a good crop. The others is plural, meaning the majority of the seed does not fall in these failure areas, but the majority of the seed falls on ground that's going to produce a crop that yields a, 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 an extraordinary amount. 
And like I told you earlier, we would plant early so that that, that seed and that growth would stool out and then it would grow. And, and one seed would bring uh, many, many plants from it and thus produce a great harvest. He uses two Greek participles here. He says, as they grow up and increase. Here, only Mark does this. He's marking a steady growth. When the seed is in good soil, there's going to be steady growth. Many times, Gene and I and the boys would go out um, over newly planted fields, and we actually would pray over them. We, we had a lot of dry farm that we needed rain to come, and, and we'd pray that God would produce the hay we needed so we can keep the cattle and horses fed through the winter and so on. And then when it would come up, and the boys would really enjoy this, man, that little green blade would push its way through, and then all of a sudden the brown dry field becomes green and it starts to come up. What an amazing thing that is. You begin to thank the Lord for the increase that he has given you. So Jesus just gives this illustration. Before the explanation, the Bible says that everybody seems to go away. So he just gives the story about farming. And it's, and it's interesting, I mean, what they must have thought of. So here's our second thought. The Messiah hides truth from the hard heart. Verses 9 through 12. He concludes his parable with just a statement of warning. And and in fact, it seems as though they walk away and not hear this. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began to ask about the parable. So these people just came and heard a story about farming. I thought about it for a little bit. I wrote in my notes. They must have said, what was that about? The dude just cast out a demon of a mute guy. He battled the Pharisees on what it means to blaspheme the spirit. And then we come out here and get a lesson on farming? They had no idea. The majority of them had no connection to what Jesus was doing. And he's starting to reveal truth. And he's starting to show why people have hard hearts. Notice in verse 9 he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The ears of the religious leaders and many others were deaf. They were deaf because of their unbelief. Many had rejected Jesus and many more would come. By the time you get to John 6, it says most of them would follow him no more. Remember, he teaches on, you need to eat me, take me in, fully consume me, or you can't be with me. And many of them said, adios. And Jesus turned to his disciples, remember this, at that time says, are you two going to go? And what did they say? You have the words of life. And so the crowd is thinning it out, and this is what Jesus is doing. He has the ability to look at hard hearts. He has the ability to look at those who will reject him. When he has done this, God has done this through time. You see this with Pharaoh, who did not know the God of Egypt. His heart was hardened towards God. And so we see God often hardened hearts because of unbelief. Look at verse 10 with me. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking about the parable. Matthew records it this way. The disciples came and said to him, why are you speaking to them in parables? They're asked, just come out. Why are you doing this? And clearly they didn't understand Jesus' teaching ministry. In, the, in their essence, they're saying, why are you telling stories now? And verse 13 tells us, because they lacked understanding. Jesus says, do you lack understanding? So, Through this, Jesus begins to start to unveil what's going on. Look at verse 11 with me. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Some very key verbs there, given. To you it has been given. 
It's no strings attached to it. It's a gift to the mystery of the kingdom of God. But then there's a second group here. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So Jesus is offering two reasons. One, to reveal truth to those who believe and to hide truth from those who don't. Now, notice a comparison as you think about what Jesus was doing. Those who believe and follow and obey. Remember Jesus said, my family is the one who obeys the will of God. Those who follow and obey Jesus, their ears are open. And it's always this way. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Follow Jesus. That's that's who inherits the kingdom of God. Put your faith in Jesus alone. Not your works, not who you are, not what you bring. Put your faith in Jesus alone. Repent of your sins because the faith that you have in Jesus comes from God. Repent of your sins and follow him. That's salvation. The opposite is disbelief, doubt, reject God, reject Jesus, and then fall into disobedience and you'll have a spiritually hard heart. Happens every time. Happens every time. And pretty soon you find people who it seems their hearts as hard as this pulpit is. They don't want to hear the message of Christ. He says mystery here. This is an interesting word. This is where he first uses this word and then the New Testament picks up on this. But mystery is the idea that it consists of a revelation or explanation of divine truth that has been hidden in some time. And so to these Pharisees, they thought the mystery of the kingdom of God is that, well, we just don't know when Jesus is going to come or when the Messiah is going to come, but we know how to get there because if we do this and keep all these extra rules and traditions that we've laid down and keep the ceremonial and Mosaic law and keep all this, then we get it. Jesus says, I have a mystery to the kingdom of God. And he's referring to how to get into the kingdom. See, they thought, here's the keys to the kingdom. You do what we do, you follow what we do, you'll get in. Jesus is saying, no, there's a mystery there. There's a different way in. And it's narrow. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is narrow. We don't like to say that because we want lost people to go, oh, yeah, come on in, the doors are wide. The doors are wide to this building. You can come in. We'll take anybody and everybody that wants to come in this building and hear us. But getting to Jesus is narrow. (laughs) It's a narrow, narrow gate. It means all the stuff that you come and you say, look God what I have done. Look what I have in my hand. Look who I am. Look who I've been born into. Look at all these things I've done. I'm going to bring these through. And it's like a turnstile at Disneyland. You can't even get a stroller through there. You come in naked. You come in with nothing. And Jesus says it's a mystery because, see, they don't understand that. They come and say, look, I've done these things. This should allow me entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, it's a mystery. There's only one way into this place. It's through me. I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. No one gets to the Father. No one sees the kingdom of God, in essence, except through me. When people come and say, look, I have, I have another way in, their hearts have hardened. Jesus is referring to salvation here. So many people miss that. 
Sometimes people look at this text and they go, this seems to be hard. Jesus is cutting some out and taking others in. Well, what if that is true? Does he not have the right to do that? I mean, sometimes we try to defend Jesus in some way, but does he not have the right to say you go and you don't? Does he not have that right? I know that's hard, but that's what the Bible teaches, right? He is perfect in all that he does. We're all deserving of eternal death. No one has the right to go in. And yet, yet we begin to understand that Jesus is showing what is the result of hard hearts is a lack of entrance into the kingdom of God. Verse 12 sheds a little light on this. Look at this. He's quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 here. So that while they're seeing, they may, not, they may see and not perceive. While they're hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So here he brings you back to Isaiah 6, a passage written, think about this, seven centuries earlier to unveil, unveil the results of unbelief in his own ministry now. And he brings you back to Israel that had constantly rejected the word of God though it was sent to them prophet after prophet. And he's showing why their hearts are hard. Look, you've seared your conscience. You've hardened your hearts towards truth. I sent person after person to show you the truth and you reject them. In fact, Jesus later will say, which of the prophets did you not kill? Reject God's word, die in your sin. This is what Jesus is teaching here. Reject God. Reject his word. Reject his son. Reject his truth. And your heart hardens. In the end, you find yourself on a rocky, stony, thorny ground. And there's no way back to repentance. Now, once again, God's word is in that same place now. Israel, the history of it in the Old Testament, rejection. I already told you they went to Assyrians and Babylons and Mede Persians and Greeks and Romans. They've been under the hand of God for some time. But here, once again, now the word of God is among them. John calls them the Logos. The ultimate of wisdom and power and authority was among them. And now they're doing the same things their forefathers have done. And the result is they become hardened. In the end, they cannot return and they are not forgiven. And just like the Old Testament Israel, now the New Testament Israel, at least in the, in the a synopsis here, is suffering at the hands of Rome. They too will go into more captivity. We know in 70 AD, Titus comes in, levels Jerusalem. Absolutely destroys the Jews. Now, before I move on to my next point, because I want to be clear here. Not all Israel is Israel, Romans chapter 9. Paul writes that, meaning not be, he's, what his context is, is just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you get the kingdom of God. But the same is true that not all judgment falls on all of Israel. I want to be clear here. God has proven that down through time. As he uh, gathers his people, there's always someone who trusts in them. I'm just finishing Jeremiah, my personal reading in the morning. And Jeremiah and Barak are the only two guys in that entire book who bend the knee to God. And yet they did. And though he tells them over and over, don't go to Egypt, obey God, come in. Babylon is God's man. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is God's man. He's going to take it to Babylon, build houses there, live there. Everything, this is what God is going to do. He's bringing punishment to the nation. They still kill Jeremiah in the end. But God always has a remnant. 
He always has the Hoseas. He always has a group. And even in our biblical New Testament, when you look, here's this great group of people. In the end, they cry out, crucify him. We have a king. His name is Caesar. We don't want this one. There's still 120 people in an upper room. Because he always saves people. And I I want you to know that. I don't want you to go away and go, man, hard hearts. No one's going to get to him. He can break hard hearts. Always does. And every one of us are an object lesson of that. Brothers and sisters, if he left you to yourself, where would you be? It's scary to think about that, isn't it? Now, this still happens today. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Hard hearts are increasing, though, today. And I want to show you that Romans 1 is about all of us, and yet it is an example of what's going on as Men and women and boys and girls reject God's word. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, here we back to the seed again, the truth and unrighteousness. God's word says this, we're going to do this. You want to find a hard heart? That's the way you find it. God's word says this, we're going to go do this. Because of that which was known about God is evident with him, for God made it evident to them. He's revealed himself in general revelation through creation. Verse 20, for since creation of the world, his visible, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man will be without excuse. So, And you go, well, what about the uh, innocent native living in the deep, dark jungle? One, they're not innocent. Two, God has left knowledge of himself through his own creation so that they would cry out for someone, and if they cry out for someone, he would send someone. Romans chapter 10. But it goes on. Because we want to figure out, I don't want to be this this hard heart on the path. We don't want our children, we don't want our coworkers, our neighbors to be this, so we want to understand how do they get there, verse 21, for even though they knew God, most people in this nation still, I think 93.5, I read not too long ago, are not atheists and believe in a divine being in this nation. So no matter how you hear the atheists talk, most people confess there was a God, for they knew there was a God, but they did not honor him. There's where the hard hearts start to come. You rob him of his glory. And as God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So there's no worship to him. There's no concern with him, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts, and look at this word, darkened the hardening of starting. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what they did in the nation of Israel. The first time they get a chance to worship and Moses isn't there, what do they do? Build a calf. Egyptian God came right out of the fire. Man's still doing this today. And man, I love creation as much as anybody. I've been in it all my life. I've fished and hunted and loved the creation of God and just explored his world as much as I possibly can. But I don't bend the knee to it. 
Our world is caught up with the creation rather than the creator. In verse 24, we begin to see the hardening happening. Therefore, God gave them over. And don't forget, brothers and sisters, this would be us if it was not for God. God gave them over. This is the first of three uses of this. In their lust of their hearts to impurities, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They would exchange the truth. There's the seed of God. That's the word of God for a lie and worship and serve creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul can't even mention his name without blessing him. Verse 26, second usage. For this reason, God gave them over to a grating passion. The heart is hardening more. For the women exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in desire towards one another. Men with committing, uh, men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person due penalty of their error. We see so much disease and problems that comes from immorality. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, the hardening has set in. God gave them over to a deprived mind to do those things which are not proper. Now this isn't on God. He just, in a sense, lets them go into their sin, lets their sin just take them over. It's, it's man, there's a million examples, but not dealing with, with maybe a cancer cell that chemo could do something, you just let it go. And you're just going to die because cancer is going to just take over. And that's the idea here. God just lets them go. And this depravity just takes them. It takes them to the things that they should not do. Verse 29, look at this list, being filled with all unrighteousness. It starts out with that, all unrighteousness. That takes care of everything. But then he adds to this. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, not sure how that one got in their kids, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. All of this is absolute rebellion against God. And this is where the state of man is at. It's been a long war against God since Genesis 3. It's a long war against God. And man's heart hardens. Last verse, verse 32. And although, look at this, they know the ordinances of God. Why? Because Romans chapter 2, verse 15 says he writes it on their heart. (laughs) We know right and wrong before we were saved. We knew what we were doing was wrong. And he said, they know the ordinances of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They are not only do the same, but they also give hardly approval. The idea is applause to those who practice them. Brothers and sisters, the only hope is placing saving faith in Christ alone and turn and repent from sin. This is, this is the parable. He hasn't even given the explanation yet of it. And we're, and we're going to do that next week. <laughs> He merely gave a farming lesson. It provoked the disciples to say, Jesus, what are you doing? All those who are following us are now leaving. They don't understand what you're doing. And it gave Jesus the opportunity to teach them, look, there are four types of hearts in this world. There's only one who will follow me. And I will reveal mystery of the kingdom of God, salvation, how to get to my Father 
only to those of hearts I will plow in. And brothers and sisters, there's many in this room that God plowed in your heart a long time ago. He took the word of God in the spirit of God and he went to work on your heart long before you knew it. He began to get out there and and fire up the tractor of the scriptures and drop that disc deep into your heart and plow. And then came grandma or a vacation Bible school or youth ministry or a preacher who preached the word of God and God took that seed, that word of God and he planted it in there and covered it up and there he began to water it and, and the work of the Spirit of God uh, illuminated the Son of Jesus Christ, the Son, His light to your heart, and their salvation sprung forth. <laughs> and a little seed, a faithful person who preached Jesus to you, turned into a great abundance. And let me tell you how great. Now, there's so much here. We're going to dig into this next week more because don't, don't miss next week because we've got to get to the good stuff. Um, and let me tell you this how much Jesus saves you in a moment. Of time. He did all the work. We can't do that. You can't plow people's hearts. I haven't plowed anybody's heart. I've never saved a person in all my years of ministry. That's what God does. But in that moment of time, He saves you. And He brings 30 and 60 and 100 fold back from that. And let me tell you what part of that is, and we're going to look at more of that next week. He gives you eternal life. He brings you to a point where you will want to glorify God for eternity from one seed. One seed planted in the heart by some faithful person that he used to teach God's word to you, planted into your heart, and you will live forever because of that. That's amazing. So what are you going to do with the word this week? We're going to see in a coming parable, are you going to hide it under a bushel? You're going to find out next week that the sower sows this seed, and that seed that falls on fertile ground, it's going to bring a great harvest. But the problem is the seed has to be thrown. And that's the one place where we come in. We don't change a seed. We don't mess with the seed. We give the original seed that God gave us. We give that out over and over and over. We cast it. Some of it may fall on rocky ground and hard roads and thorny places, but we give it out, and we are promised that we will return to it. What will you do with the seed this week? Will you even read it? Will you give it to anybody? God promises he won't let it return void. He promises that. So he has given us this beautiful farming lesson to show us what he did with our hearts. Come back next week. We'll finish this, I promise. It's a beautiful teaching. Father, thank you for a chance to get into this text. It is so in-depth that it seems to be just a simple parable of a sower who goes out and sows. And yet, in the middle of that, it reveals the hard-heartedness of man. Why man and how he gets to where he's at. A constant rejection of God. A constant of wanting to do what, what man wants to do rejecting what he knows to be truth to seek self-gratification. And he ends up with a terribly, terribly hard heart. And he's outside of the kingdom of God someday. So Lord, if we would not want to just focus on that, we would end this prayer with thanking you for plowing in our hearts. 
Because, Lord, it isn't hard for us to read Romans 1, to read Mark chapter 4 and realize if it wasn't for you, we would be in thorny ground or shallow soil or on a pavement somewhere being gobbled up by Satan himself. And so, Father, we end this prayer with thanking you that you came and did a work. And, Father, I plead with you, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, Lord, and they've heard just a portion of the sermon, they haven't heard it all yet, but they're still wrestling. Is my heart hard? Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would plant a seed right now. You would rescue that soul, Lord. And, Lord, we'll give you the credit for it because we're just casting seed. It's you who does the work. We pray that you would return that with great, great glory to your Father. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.